Thanks, Tim. Matt Price rang me on the way in and said, can I read for him? So it's the older version, so it may be slightly different to what you see on behind you. But our first reading is from Deuteronomy 1, uh, reading from 1 to 8, and then we'll continue on from 19 to 46. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, uh, opposite Super, uh, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazroth and Dizab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh, Barnea, by the Mount Seir road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Shehon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and at Edrei had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned at Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound the law, saying, The Lord our God has said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighbouring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb, and went towards the hill country of the Amorites, through all that vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Gadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected twelve of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you are unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say, The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way 
you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in cloud by day to search out the places for you to camp and to show the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter it either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children, who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Then you replied, We have sinned against our Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it is easy to go up the hill country. But the Lord said to me, Tell them, do not go up and fight, because I will not be with them. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Humah. Then came they, you came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Um, thank you for reading, Peter. Uh, talk about getting given a hospital pass of a Bible reading uh, at the last minute. You did so well. Thank you, mate. Um, yeah, super excited to be starting Deuteronomy with you. Um, I joke about that Bible reading. It occurred to me, as, if, you've been, if you were watching along on the screen uh, as Pete was reading there, it's like reading sort of uh, the Bible one tweet at a time, isn't it? You get just you know a couple of sentences and then it's gone, then there's the next one. That's help was better than nothing, but... Um, I really want to encourage you, church, to consider bringing a physical Bible along, particularly for the sake of this Deuteronomy series. It would fit you really, really well to have a physical Bible in your lap for this series. Because as Tim said, we're covering such a large portion of this book each time. We simply can't dive into every single verse in, in detail in these sermons. And so having a copy in your lap that you can scan your eyes over uh, as you're listening uh, along would fit you really, really well. If you don't have a Bible, we've got stacks that we'd love to give you. You can grab one at the welcome desk after the service. Anyway, that's my announcement. I'm going to pray for us and, uh, and then we'll have a think about Deuteronomy 1 to 3. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this record that we have of your dealings with your people in Deuteronomy. And we thank you for the way that you dealt with them, for the way you revealed yourself to them. And we thank you that it was written down because we know, Lord, that it was for our sakes that this happened. We know that it was for our benefit on whom the culmination of the ages has come. We might learn from their example. And so, Lord, please teach us today as we examine Deuteronomy 1 to 3. Uh, help us, Lord, not just to 
to wrestle academically and intellectually with this very foreign, very ancient part of your word, but help us to wrestle with it as you instructing us, teaching us the way to go and calling us to love you. Pray that for this whole series, Lord, that we would grow in our love and our, our obedience to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, marriage is a, a wonderful blessing, and it's very hard. It's both, often, together. Uh, marriage, you see, begins with a, a very bold promise that you make to another person. You say, I will love you for the rest of my life, come what may. And, and thus begins your marriage. A pretty audacious thing to say, isn't it? I will love you for the rest of my days, in, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, all of that. Uh, now, it's pretty easy, actually, to say those words at the start of your marriage, on your wedding day. Hopefully, you found it easy if you're a married person, because, uh, you know, hopefully you were in a good mood on your wedding day. I trust that you were. Hopefully, you looked pretty smart. The person you were standing opposite looked at their, their best as well. You were inclined to say, I love you to them. Uh, hopefully, at your wedding day, you were, you know, you've been looking forward to that day for some period of time. And so there was this anticipation of giving yourself to that other person in love. And I hope that those words come easy to you if you find yourself standing at the altar. It's easy to say on your wedding, I love you. I will love you in sickness and in health, richer for poorer. I will be there for you every single day. It's easy to say that then, and then it's harder from that point on for the rest of your marriage. Because, you see, it's in the day-to-day, -day, the living with that other person that you've pledged yourself to, that love gets worked out, the details of it. Uh, you see, on, on Monday, in the midst of your busyness, you have to choose to say, okay, I will love you today. And on Tuesday, when you're feeling tired and it's a little bit more inconvenient, you choose to say, I will still love you today. I've made a promise. And then on Wednesday, when it's getting hard and you feel a little bit fed up with that person, you have to remember that you have committed yourself to that person in love. I will love you. That, if, if those wedding vows mean anything, it means that. That you work out how to love that person in the cut and thrust of normal, everyday life. In the way that you talk to that other person. I will work out how to talk to you in a way that loves you. In serving you in different ways, I will love you. I'll think about the, the best ways to love you. I will figure out what you like and I will try and steer myself towards that. And I'll figure out what you dislike and I'll try and steer my life away from those things. I've committed to you in love and so I will, from this day forth, forevermore, love you. Not perfectly, of course. No one ever loves their husband or their wife perfectly. But, you know, as a, as a default orientation of your life. That's what love means, isn't it? Of course, we will go wrong but we will try as best as we can to love that other person in everything. I tell you this because the book of Deuteronomy is a call to love the Lord your God from this day forth forevermore. It's called to love the Lord on Monday when you're finding it a bit hard, but to love him anyway. And on Tuesday when you're a bit tired and it's a bit inconvenient to love the Lord today, to do it. To love him in all the details of your day. To love him with all your heart and soul and strength. To love him on Wednesday. Love him as a response for all that he is for you. All that he's done for you. To say, I will love you with, with very practical obedience. 
Because, you see, in Deuteronomy, as we're going to notice over the course of this term, the pattern is that if you love the Lord, you will trust Him. And if you trust Him, you'll serve Him. You will walk in His ways. You will obey Him. You're going to see time and time again that over the course of Deuteronomy, those words are basically synonymous. They're just interchangeably used. Love, trust, obey, serve, walk in His ways. This is what a relationship with the Lord looks like. It's, and it's what Deuteronomy is calling us to. It's a call to love Him from this day forth with everything that we've got, giving our whole lives to Him, choosing Him today and choosing Him again tomorrow and the next day. Love Him. Make that choice every day. That's what we're going to hear week after week in Deuteronomy. Now, as, as we come to the book of Deuteronomy, I've got to kind of understand uh, what we're reading here and sort of where we are in the, the Bible's timeline as we get to, to start Deuteronomy. Uh, we are at the point where the nation of Israel is on the cusp of entering the promised land, the land of Canaan, that land which God promised to Abraham all the way back towards the beginning of the Bible. And finally, at the point of Deuteronomy, it looks like Israel are going to receive that land. They're going to enter in and, and receive their inheritance. And really, as you read Deuteronomy, it is a collection of speeches that Moses made. It's the final words of Moses to his people that he's led for 40 years before they enter the promised land. And chapter 1 to 3, which is what we're looking at this morning, is really a history lesson. Moses is casting Israel's mind back to the last 40 years. And he's trying to teach them some lessons that they need to learn before they enter into the land. Now, I said Moses is teaching them the last 40 years of history, and it begins really at the point where Israel are at Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, as it's called in the book. Uh, you remember Israel get rescued out of slavery in Egypt. That's the book of Exodus, the Exodus event. Uh, they get taken through the Red Sea. Uh, they get led to Mount Sinai. They get given the law on Mount Sinai. I think Charlton Heston, you know, Ten Commandments, Big Beard and all that. Uh, and now, God tells Israel, at that point, after they've arrived at Mount Sinai, they've been there for about a year, okay, it's time to pack up and move on. I'm taking you to the promised land, says God. Look at uh, verse 7 and 8 of chapter 1. Verse uh, 8, God says, See, I have given you this land. Go, take possession of the land the Lord your God swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. God's saying, I've given the land to you. It's assured. It's promised. Now just go in and take it. You're ready now. Act in faith. Trust that I've given it to you and go and take it. That's what God is, is calling them to, really, for this whole book. Trust me. I've given you the land. Go and take it. And Moses tells their, story, their, their, their history starting from that moment onwards. And he's going to show them two things, two points for us today that we're going to learn through Moses. Firstly, he's going to show that there is failure when you disobey God. There's failure when you disobey God. And secondly, that there's hope when you trust Him. Pretty simple. And we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 1 today, which is the first of those points, that there is failure when you disobey God. So, let's pick it up again uh, from verse 19. God has told Israel to go. And so, verse 19... Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb, from Sinai, and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful wilderness that you've seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you've reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you this land. 
Go up, take possession of it as the Lord, your God of, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. You see, here's the message. You're here. The moment is now, Israel. Go, take possession, and don't be scared. Don't panic. Don't be afraid. God has given it to you. Just reach out and take it. Now, I'm, I'm going to put up a map just so that everyone can kind of get their bearings about uh, where Israel are at this point and where they've been and that sort of thing. Uh, so here is Mount Sinai, down the bottom of the, the Sinai Peninsula. This is sort of northeast Egypt. Israel are told, go north, go to Kadesh Barnea. That's where they are, verse 19. And God says to them, go in and take possession of the promised land, the land of Canaan up here. Go north, Israel. You're right there on the border. Now just pop on over and take the land. But Israel, unfortunately, <laughs> didn't do that. Uh, before they went north and entered the promised land, they decided it would be a good idea to send some spies into the land to sort of suss it out a little bit. You can read, actually, about that incident in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, if you're interested. So they send in the spies. Moses thinks it's a good idea. And the spies go in, take a look around, and come back to Israel with a good report. Verse 25 of chapter 1. The spies say, it's a good land that the Lord is giving to us. See that? It's a good land that the Lord is giving to us. That's a nice combination, isn't it? If somebody comes to you and says, I've got a good thing for you, and I'm going to give it to you as a gift, what do you say? You say, yes, please. Thank you. I will take that. That's what you do with a good gift. But that's unfortunately not what Israel do. They stuff it up, actually, in two ways, in fact. And you see the first way that they stuff it up in verse 26 to about 33. They stuff it up by saying, actually, we don't think that the Lord is going to fight for us. That's their first mistake, their first failure. Let's have a read from verse 26. They've received the report from the spies, verse 26, but you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. I mean, it, it's an audacious thing for them to say, isn't it? God has told them, I'm giving you this land, just like I promised to you hundreds of years ago. It's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. If you go in, you will be blessed. And the people say, God hates us. I, I don't want what God has for me. And it starts with grumbling there in verse 27. They grumble in their tents. That's often how disobedience begins, isn't it? You grumble to yourself. You grumble to anyone else who will be willing to listen. The Lord hates us, says Israel. Wow, really, Israel? The Lord who rescued you out of slavery, the Lord who parted the Red Sea for you, the Lord who provided for you every step of the journey along the way, the Lord who met you and spoke to you at Mount Sinai, you think he hates you, Israel? Well, look what they think. Verse 28, they have three objections, three reasons why they don't want to go into the land. God has said, go and take the land, but they say, no, we can't do that. Firstly, the people are stronger and taller than we are. Secondly, the cities are large and the, the walls are up to the sky. And thirdly, they say, even the Anakites are in the land. Now, maybe that doesn't fill you with fear and trembling, but it would have done in the ancient Near East because the Anakites, you see, they were this kind of race of extremely large human beings. Uh, so imagine Israel looking into the Promised Land, seeing the Anakites. It would be a bit like you as a schoolboy 
stepping onto the rugby pitch to face the All Blacks. You know, that's the kind of level of intimidation. They think they're going to get flattened. Israel are assessing the situation in front of them, and they think this doesn't compute. I know God said, go in and take it, but look at the people in the land. Look at their cities. Look at the walls. We don't stand a chance against them. And Moses replies to them in verse 29. And he, he has three things to tell them in reply, why they shouldn't be terrified or afraid. See what he says there in verse 29? He says, the Lord your God is going before you. Israel, remember, you're not alone in this. God's with you as you go into the land. That's the first thing. Second thing, he's going to fight for you. Who cares if the All Blacks are your opponents? You've got the Lord of heaven and earth on your side. You think they stand a chance? And the third thing he says is that he will care for you, Israel. And they should have seen that before, shouldn't they? The Lord had cared for them in Egypt. He'd cared for them before their very eyes in the wilderness. You see how the Lord God carried you as a father carries his son all the way until they reached this place. It's a lovely image of God's care for Israel, isn't it? For his people. I'm spending a significant portion of my life carrying my children at the moment. Uh, We've got a newborn, Zach. He's seven weeks old. And he's at the stage where he just wants to be held uh, every waking hour, basically. Uh, which is fine by us at the moment because he's quite cuddly. We think he's pretty cute. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nice getting snuggles from this little human, apart from all the bodily fluids that, you know, accompany it and end up on my jumper. But it, it, it's fine that he wants to be held and carried all the time because he, he barely weighs anything. So I can carry him endlessly. That's no problem at all. But th- there is a problem. The problem is that now our other two kids, seeing Zach get all the cuddles and all the carries, well, they want to be picked up and carried a lot more than they used to be. And that's a problem because uh, Silas, my, my three-year-old boy, he's built like a filing cabinet. And our daughter has just turned six as well. And I confess, I'm, not, I'm just not strong enough to carry them the way that I used to be able to when they were smaller. If I can carry them for five minutes a day, that's basically my exercise done for the day. But you see, I'm limited, but God has said to Israel, no, I can carry you, your whole nation. I, I can take care of you. In fact, I have taken care of you. I've carried you, Israel, every day to this point, and I will carry you from this day forward. It doesn't matter what the the Anakites are like in front of you, what the obstacles are. You can trust me. I'll get you where you need to go, says God. Why would you be scared? God's with you. He fights for you. He cares for you. He's like a dad with his kid. Why would you be scared? And yet they are, verse 32. In spite of this, you did not trust the Lord your God, says Moses. They had every reason to trust him, but you see, they forgot who their God was. They forgot that he was with them. They forgot that he fought for them. They forgot that he was caring for them. They had every reason to trust him, and yet they forgot. When I was uh, a younger child, I reckon I was about 10 at the time, I got into a fight with an older kid from around our neighbourhood. And I think he was about 14 or 15 at the time. Uh, He had been a bully for a while in our neighbourhood. And uh, he had some problem with me. I'd wronged him in some way. And uh, one day when I was out playing with some friends in the street in front of our house, uh, this kid rode around, came into our neighbourhood, rode up to me on his bike and punched me square in the face. And I immediately ran home crying, as you can imagine. And uh, I went in the front door and the first person to greet me there was my dad. 
he knelt down, he, he asked whether I was okay, find out what had happened. I some, you know, blubbered some words about a bully and some whatnot. My dad stood up and he walked out the front door and I followed him and he sprinted down the street to confront the kid who had punched me. And he got right up in his face and he said, you think it's okay to punch children? And he, he gave this kid a real dressing down. He talked to him about the, the consequences of his actions. And I remember watching this and thinking, you know, that bully who a few moments ago looked 10 feet tall to me, he really doesn't look very menacing in light of my dad. And at the end of this interaction, the bully apologised to me and never came around to our neighbourhood again. We never had any more problems with him. But I'll tell you what, and this is the honest truth, I was never scared of bullies as a kid from that point onwards because I knew I had my dad in my corner. I knew my dad was going to take care of me, no, no matter how menacing my opponents might be. I was going to be okay. Israel was terrified because they had forgotten who their God was. You see what happens when you, when you know who your God is, when you remember who he is, the power that he has, that he's your good and loving heavenly father who cares for you? It makes you okay. It makes you able to get through whatever you're going through. But it's not just Israel's problem, you see, their forgetfulness. This is something that we struggle with as well. Even as Christians, can I say, it's very easy to forget what your God is like, what your father is like. You know, at some point this week, you will face the question, well, how am I going to get through the thing that's in front of me this week, this problem, this, this situation that I find myself in? Whatever it might be, whatever the, you know, the Anakites might be, it's not going to be that menacing in your life, I'm sure, but whatever you're facing this week, whatever the difficulty, bullying at work, financial pressure, loneliness, sickness, utter exhaustion, unemployment, whatever it might be, how... Can I trust God in this scenario? That's the question under the surface. How can I keep obeying him and being faithful to him? Every one of you will have to navigate that question at some point. See, the answer is, if you want to remain faithful to your God, you want to keep obeying him and honouring him, you have to remember who he is in those scenarios. It's really easy to grumble, to think, the Lord doesn't love me. He wouldn't, if he loved me, he wouldn't have put this thing in my life. He probably hates me. He must have abandoned me into the wilderness. But friends, don't make the mistake that Israel made. Don't forget your God. He is with you. He is for you. He cares for you. Can I say, if you, if you need a reminder of that as a Christian, I mean, just flip to any page in the New Testament and you can find a reminder. But how about Romans chapter 8? That might be the best place. It's, Romans chapter 8 is almost like this reminder from Deuteronomy condensed in New Testament form. You remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that nothing, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is in love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is for you. He is with you. 
He cares for you. As a Christian, you have every reason to trust God. So remember who he is. Remember and trust. Israel failed at exactly that. That was their first mistake. They didn't trust that God would fight for them. And so the result, you see it there in verses 34 to 40, Deuteronomy 1. The Lord says to them, well, if you're not going to trust me, then away with you. Go away, verse 35. It says, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors. It's a catastrophic punishment. And he tells them there in verse 40, he says, go back towards the desert, along the route to the Red Sea. Now, if you remember that geography, where are they going? Back south towards the Red Sea, back towards Egypt. It's an anti-Exodus moment. It's an undoing of what God had done for them. It was a terrible punishment. They didn't trust the Lord to fight for them, and so there was disaster. But they made another mistake straight after that. You see it in verse 41 through to 46. Their second mistake is that they actually presumed that the Lord would fight for them regardless. Their first mistake, oh, the Lord won't fight for us. The second mistake, oh, he's going to fight for us no matter what. So look from verse 41. God says, you'll never enter the promised land. And then you replied, Israel replied, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons thinking it is easy to go into the hill country. You get what's going on? Israel, it's dawned on them. Oh, whoopsie, made a mistake there. Uh, you know, God, you said go up. And uh, we said, no, that looks too scary. And uh, so you said, no, go, I'm with you. I promised this land for you. I'll fight for you. And we said, no, 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 the Anakite, that's going to be too hard. And so God said, right, all right, then, well, you can go and die in the desert. And we said, oh, I don't like the sound of that. Okay, then, I guess we'll obey God. Sorry about that one. Let's have a do-over. Can we just carry on as if nothing's happened? And God says, no, we can't just sweep that under the rug. Verse 42, don't go up and fight because I will not be with you. And you will be defeated by your enemies. But look, verse 43, they ignore God's warning, verse 43. So I told you, but you would not listen. And look, at, look here how uh, their language is, is piled up here. You rebelled against the Lord's command. In your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. They think, oh, God will forgive us. Yeah, we made a mistake, but God will forgive us. He'll still be with us. It's his job to forgive us. We'll be fine. We'll go up and fight. You see how, how trivial this is to Israel, how glib they are. There's this superficial repentance here with Israel, isn't there? They have not grasped how serious their sin is and their disobedience. And so there is disaster. Verse 44, 45 they are defeated in battle. They are chased like a swarm of bees and beaten down. Verse 45, you came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and he turned a deaf ear to you. Because you see, the Lord doesn't want tears. He wants obedience. That's what he wants from his, his people. Not superficial repentance, not, oh, Sorry, that, I don't like the consequence of that action. Let's have another go. No, not tears even. He wants obedience. Do you, do you see, friends, that there is a world of difference for Israel and for us between regret and repentance? Regret is saying, oh, I don't like the outcome of my actions. Oh, I'll do it differently. Repentance is saying, I was wrong, God. 
I will do whatever you say from here on out. Regret and repentance. I can't tell you how many people uh, I've met with at the point where they've been caught in some sin and exposed. And they come often deeply sorrowful about the situation they find themselves in. Uh, Quite often, these meetings that I have as a pastor are often due to sexual sin. And I think that's partly because the consequences for sexual sin are usually quite serious. I can remember one girl in particular uh, who, who came to meet with my wife Catherine and I. She had been caught in uh, a sexual sin and had been exposed. It was a pretty major indiscretion. And she sat on our couch and she cried and cried and cried. And we talked to her about repentance and about the forgiveness that God offers to anyone who turns from their sin to trust in Jesus. But you know, a couple months later, she was back on our couch, crying again because she'd done the exact same thing. And at that point, you think, okay, your tears, what were they? It wasn't repentance, because you've not changed, have you? It must have been regret. That feeling of, oh, I don't like the consequences of my actions. Oh, I don't like other people's opinion of me changing. Oh, I don't like the awkwardness that's resulted from the decision I made. That's regret, tears of regret, sure, but not repentance, because she hadn't changed. Friends, the Lord wants obedience, not tears. He wants repentance, not regret. If you're going to follow him, it must result in obedience. To love the Lord is to trust him, is to serve him, is to walk in his ways, is to obey him. For Israel, there was failure when they disobeyed God. Firstly, they failed by not trusting the Lord to fight for them. And then secondly, they failed by expecting the Lord to fight for them, even when they wouldn't obey him. But as is the case in Deuteronomy, anytime there is a real downer like that, uh, anytime there is this moment of failure and catastrophe, very shortly afterwards, Deuteronomy presents us with a picture of hope. Uh, the clouds part and the sun shines again. And so secondly, we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3, and much more quickly this time, that there's hope when you trust God. There is hope when you trust God. Uh, so chapter 1 was all about Israel's history 40 years ago, that moment at Mount Sinai and where they first arrived at the Promised Land. Uh, But now, chapters 2 and 3 kind of fast forward about 38 years, and it's the most recent history of Israel, about two or three months' worth of history take place in chapters 2 and 3, right up until the point uh, of Moses speaking uh, the words of Deuteronomy. And as Moses skims over this recent history, there's another couple of lessons that he wants to show them. Uh, He wants to show them that there is hope when they trust God. Now, Uh, In chapter 2, if you've got your Bible there, have a look and scan over the first part of chapter 2. We're not going to look at this in detail, but basically this is Israel now marching towards the Promised Land. Their wandering in the desert has finished, and now they're actually making their way through some of the territory that belongs to their half-brothers, people like the Moabites and the Ammonites. If you've got the map again, so they've they've wandered around the desert region. Now they're heading north up this side of of, uh, the Jordan River, They're in this kind of territory here, where their half-brothers live. And as as Israel walked through this territory, Moses keeps pointing out to them. He says, hey, Israel, do you realize that God gave the Moabites this land? Do you realize that God gave the Ammonites this land? Oh, and hey, do you remember who used to live in this land before God gave it to them? Some giant Amicites used to live here as well. This is kind of Moses on the journey showing them exhibit A. 
proof that God really does keep his promises and that he can be trusted. And then, sort of exhibit B, the next bit of evidence, if you like, that, that there is hope when you trust and obey God, Moses then looks at the most recent military victories that Israel have had over Sihon, king of Heshbon, right there at the end of chapter 2, and then over Og, king of Bashan, in chapter 3. A very elegant name, Og, isn't it? You can put that one in your memory bank for a potential baby name in the future, if you like. Uh, now, let's, let's pick up this, uh, we'll just dip in and out of it really quickly, uh, the story of their defeat of King Og of Bashan. Have a look in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 3. Uh, so the Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army. We struck them down, leaving no survivors. And at that time, we took all his cities. There was not one of the 60 cities that we did not take from them, the whole region of Argob, Og's kingdom in Bashan. Now, this is an interesting detail, verse 5. All these cities were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars, and there were also a great many unwalled villages. We completely destroyed them, as we had done with Sihon, king of Heshbon, destroying every city, men, women, and children. Chapter 1, God says, go up, take the land, and Israel say, oh, we can't do that, the cities are too strong, too big, we'll, we'll never make it. Chapter 3, Moses says, hey, realize that you've conquered 60 cities already, and what were they like? Oh, they were, they were pretty fortified too, I guess maybe we can conquer the promised land. And then you get another little tidbit right at the end of the story here. It's fascinating. Verse 11, uh, you get told uh, that Og, king of Bashan, was the last of the Rephaites. His bed was decorated with iron and was more than nine cubits long and four cubits wide. And it's still in rabbit of the Ammonites. This is six feet wide by about 14 feet long. And now that's a, a random bit of Bible trivia that you might want to you know, store away in your memory bank. But Moses is not mentioning that fact just for curiosity's sake because it's kind of a funny anecdote. He mentions that. What's the point? Because Og must have been massive to need a bed that's the size of four single beds put together. Do you see the point? That even giants don't stand a chance when Israel is on the march with God, when they're trusting God. You know, whether it's fortified cities or overgrown enemies, nothing can stop Israel when they are trusting the Lord and doing what God tells them. When they trust the Lord, there is hope. They will get the promised land. They will inherit all that God has promised them. Their trust, you see, has just got to translate into obedience. And they've got every reason to trust his promises, don't they? That should be plainly obvious to them. Every reason to think that God is going to come through on what he delivered, no matter how hard it might seem, God, they have seen God fulfill so many promises, haven't they? Back in uh, July of 1914, right as World War I uh, was kicking off in Europe, uh, the opposition leader here in Australia, a guy named Andrew Fisher, uh, he was running for Prime Minister at the time. There was a campaign happening. And he said in an election speech in July 1914, should the worst happen... After everything has, done, has been done that honour will permit, Australians will stand beside the mother country to help and defend her to our last man and our last shilling. Big promise, isn't it? Andrew Fisher uh, would become the Prime Minister about a month later after saying that. And then a couple of months after that, he would be the man responsible for sending the first Anzac soldiers into World War I in order to keep that promise, to make good on it fight for the people of Australia. You see, 
keeping your promises, even when they're hard, when someone is faithful to their word like that, it's worth celebrating, it's worth being thankful for, it's an extremely precious thing, isn't it? When somebody will follow through on what they say they're going to do. Friends, how much more precious is the faithfulness of God? If you're a Christian, you've seen God keep more promises than you can count all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, in Jesus Christ himself, you've seen God keep his promises. He promised that he would come and deliver us, and he did. He promised that he would lay down his life as a ransom for sinners, and he did. He promised that he would rise again and offer forgiveness to all, and he did. He promised that he is going to return one day, and that one hasn't happened yet. But given the fact that he has kept all of his other promises, I think we can trust him on that one, don't you? I think we can obey him now, don't you? When God says to us, Christian, obeying me now, it's for your, for your good. It's the best thing for you. It is the path to joy and to satisfaction. I promise that for you. You can trust him, can't you? Even when he calls us to costly obedience to love our enemies, to take up our cross, to lay down our lives. We can trust him that that's for our good, can't we? Because he's never broken a promise. You see, there's failure when you disobey God, but there is hope when you trust him. That's the book of Deuteronomy in a nutshell, really. There is pessimism and optimism side by side all the way throughout Deuteronomy. And unfortunately, chapter 3 ends on... Yet another pessimism, a note of pessimism. Because we get told at the end of chapter 3 that Moses himself doesn't get to enter the promised land. Moses, the one who led God's people for 40 years. He's part of the generation who are barred from entering. And it's a reminder for us, really, of this, this tension throughout the whole book. That Israel will fail. There's, there's proof of that. There's, in fact, quite explicit references knowing that they will fail again in the future. That, that's unavoidable. And yet at the same time, there's this thread of hope kind of interwoven in the story of Israel. That God's got these promises for them that they will inherit this land. And he is a God who always keeps his promises. And so there's, there's a tension here in the book. For Israel, as they hear Moses preaching this to them, they ought to have been discouraged as they, as they looked at themselves, as they looked at what a state they were in, because they kept failing and they were going to keep failing in the future. But the lesson for them, you see, is that when they looked at God, there is hope for them, enormous hope. And for us too, do you know, as, as we read this book of Deuteronomy, we're going to find ourselves asking the question, what's going to win in the end? Israel's failures or God's promises? Which one's going to come out on top? And you know the answer, don't you? Because in the end, God's promises always win. And we'll get there eventually. But first, there has to be death and judgment for Israel. See, Israel has got to live with optimism and pessimism. But there's a difference for us today here if we are Christians. It's a different experience for us. If you're a Christian, you should be a hopeful person, an optimistic person. Because you see, unlike Israel, who failed and failed again and would never stop failing and were told that they would be punished and cast out and sent into the wilderness, as a Christian, you're someone who knows that you will fail 
But it's not you who got sent out or who will be sent out. It was, it was your Lord Jesus who was sent out. He was the one who was exiled. He was the one who was sent into the wilderness, who was cut off from the presence of God, not because of his disobedience, but because of yours, so that you could enter the promised land, the land of heaven. That's the difference knowing Jesus makes. So we should be optimistic people, shouldn't we? Despite our failures, because we know that Christ has paid for them. And so as we live here, on this earth, in the meantime, shouldn't we love the Lord? He's with us. He's for us. He cares for us. So love him, which means trust him, which means obey him, which means walk in his ways. Remember who your God is, and you can obey him. Choose that today. Choose that again on Monday. Choose that again on Tuesday and every day. Let me pray for us. Lord of heaven and earth, we thank you that you are both powerful and good. We thank you that in Christ, you are for us and you are with us. We thank you that you are a God who always keeps his promises. And so we thank you that miraculously, we can be people who enter the promised land, the eternal rest of heaven, not because of our obedience, but because of Christ's obedience for us. We thank you so much that he was cast out so that we could be brought in. Please, Lord, help us to love you. Help us to trust you. Help us to serve you, to walk in your ways, and to obey you today and every day. 